This is Politicking with Curtis Schoon with special guest Jason Whitlock. Good morning, Jason Whitlock. How are you today? Awesome. Awesome. What's cracking, Curtis? Oh, man. A whole lot, man. A, a whole lot, as usual, you know, on your end, my end as well. Uh, yeah, but um, I, I want to go through a, a brief summary of things I think that may work for today. Um, I, I want to start off with the article that I wrote that caught a lot of traction uh, dealing with the grievance industrial industry. GIC. Um, <laughs> GIC, that's right. Also, I know you saw that teacher um, who got pulled over and she told the Latino cop something about like, no matter what, you'll never be white, you're a murderer, and was filming the whole thing. That's a teacher. Yeah, yeah, that was. Uh, also, something that I, I think you you will definitely have more insight and input than me. Uh, Rich Danker, one of the journalists on my site, Scone TV, he wrote a very interesting article about the betting bubble bursting. I I, I saw some fascinating things in there, but you know more about sports than me, so I, I'm gonna let you do your thing with that and, and I'm gonna chime in. I saw the piece, man. This, this Richard Danker is talented. Oh man, is he? Is, is yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard Danker is a, yeah. He was a good find, but he found me actually. And of course, I know you saw Jay-Z and, um, and, and Jack Dorsey doing business. Uh, <laughs> Jack buying title and uh, Jay-Z saying he regrets the the but the words he wrote in, in Big Pimpin'. And, and last but not least, on your recommendation, I watched that, uh, that, that movie, City of Lies, last night. Oh, man. I, it's good that we're going to go out with a super bag on that one, because I got All some right. things to say about that. All right? Love so, that movie. I can't wait to hear your take. Oh, man. Listen. It's gonna get raw, but uh, but 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 in, in any event, man, yeah, the grievance industrial complex. Um, I I wrote that article because I feel like for the past I don't know eight eight years, I've been in this this constant battle with these social justice warrior types, and I um. They, they provoked me first to make my film, Black, White, and Blue. And, and then the way how they went, they went in overdrive with Trump, it kind of made me realize, man, that I needed somewhere to, to have a, a voice. So I, I set up Schoon TV just so I could say the things I want to say without threat of, of being censored and silenced because they have a lot of allies in mainstream media, social media, and print media. So they can, they can, it's like, it's like one person fighting 10,000, you know what I mean? It's, it's tough. So actually the adversity is bringing out the best in me. And that, that piece that I wrote was a, a it was a, a, a salvo across their bow, so to speak. 
because I'm not going anywhere. I, I don't like these people. I think they're weak. I think they've sold out the black community and they've been doing it for a long time, man, for generations. It's a mindset and it's progressively getting more and, and, and more decrepit, man. And, and there's less results for them because even if you don't like what someone do, you can, you can sometimes rationalize their motivations, but the things that they're getting is just not enough of it to go around for it to even make sense for that to be the motivation. And I think they've reached a tipping point where they don't have anything else other to, to no other plays that they can make other than to, uh, to beg and, and say, please boss, let me show you how useful I am. And the most sickening thing about it is they project their subservience onto men like us who really stand independent and do what we do, man. And they they make it seem like we're the boot lickers, you know what I mean? And, and they lick boots. I mean, they lick it clean. They lick boots and anything else that man want licked because they, they don't have a way to make things work. And yeah, I, 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 had, to, I had to let them know and, and, and show the history that this isn't a recent occurrence. And I wanted to tie it into the NAACP and the civil rights movement that all these people are doing that we see and we ridicule them, they just continuing a tradition. And it, because of the information age and, and so on and so forth, it's just becoming more obvious to see it because history does repeat itself. They don't lie when they say, if you don't know your past, you won't know your future. The problem is they like to look way back in the past. We don't need to look that far back. We just need to look back in the last hundred years to see where we're going. And it ain't nowhere nice. Did you read the piece, Jason? Oh, no, I, I definitely read the piece and, and, and saw it as uh, a summation of a lot of things you've been saying over the past few years. And it's, it is really good to put things in context and uh, to add some perspective in terms of what has transpired basically over the last decade. And I, was Trayvon Martin in 2013 or 2012? I, I can't remember. Uh, uh, he was 12. He was the February 2012, I think February yeah. 26. Yep. Yeah. So to go, it's been nine years, basically, uh, since Trayvon Martin. And, and you, I thought the article encapsulated what has transpired over the last nine years. And, and, and I, the thing that the number one thing I picked up on, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the, the thing with the woman and the police and the, you know, calling the police a murderer or whatever, it, it kind of falls into this category that was covered in your article that I thought was, we're going to expound on today, but the whole feminization of black leadership is what this last decade has been about. And, and you wrote in there that uh, women became more confrontational over social media and all of that. And, and, and again, I don't want to call D-Ray, but, but DeRay's part of, you mentioned DeRay McKesson, you mentioned Patrice Cullors and the-, the Janetta Elsie. 
Janetta Elvey. Yeah. I went through all the big names. Yeah, and so all of that is feminine energy. And and I'm not saying that derisively as I mentioned DeRay McKesson, but you, you know, he, he he emotes a more feminine energy than what I believe would be traditional black leadership. And, and you know, th there used to be a logic and a strategy behind uh, what we were trying to accomplish. And now it's all emotion and it's all instant gratification. And there are people arguing it worked. Look, Derek Chauvin got convicted. And so this whole thing is working. And, and, and what I would like to ask us as black people is Derek Chauvin's been convicted now for two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. How has our life improved? What, what are the benefits? And again, I, the previous generation to me, they had a strategy and, and they had actual real results that benefited a great mass of people. And so I, when I look at what the, they're acting as if the Derek Chauvin conviction in the George Floyd case, that's kind of like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. <laughs> uh, that, and, 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 and literally, we need to have a discussion amongst ourselves, like, because what the Chauvin conviction has done, I think, has benefited a niche audience. Uh, and so if you're a criminal who wants to resist arrest, the Chauvin conviction is a good thing and you can point to it as a bit, hey, you know, there's people that have my back if I want to resist police arrest. But, but what about those of us, and I think there's a great many more of us who don't have any outstanding warrants, who have no intention of resisting police arrests, uh, and who just really, if we engage with the police, we just want them to leave us alone as quickly as possible. And we're gonna do everything we can to get them to leave us alone as quickly as possible. What have we really won here? And, and so this little small contingent of people who like to argue and fuss and fight with the police, I get the Chauvin trial gives them confidence and, and they can bicker and argue with the police in confidence, I guess now, knowing that, uh, you know, if the police kill them, their family will get a big payout and the policeman may get convicted. But I just don't know any... You know, and I got some shady friends, but I don't know any of them that really want to bicker and fight with the police and, and, and you know, be killed in the streets so their family can get a payout and perhaps a policeman can go to jail. I, I just, this whole thing has been short-sighted and, and Black leadership has been emasculated uh, as long, you know, the rest of the country is being emasculated as well. It's not just simply us, but but that was my number one takeaway. Just reading your article is just like, man, we have so much feminine energy uh, at the forefront, so much emotional energy at the forefront 
being placed at the forefront. All, all those people have been DeRay McKesson, Sean K. They've all been selected and supported by a group that clearly does not want to negotiate, uh, uh, engage in any sort of debate with any black masculine logical energy. They want to deal with emotion because that's easy to beat. It's that, but that's the culmination of generations of, of capitulation and exploitation. So now we have a talentless group. Previous sellouts had some talent. So selling out didn't look as blatant as it does now because a sellout back in the day might he might be, you know, the head of a, a university or a business leader in his community creating jobs and so on and so forth. But now it's just about listen, we want we want uh we want equal rights and we want uh we want jobs and we want perpetual stimulus checks and we have a right to this and we have a right to that. I think in the past the people who were in that position were more educated and more intelligent. They, they were playing the same game, but at a higher level. So they get to be celebrated in some respects. You can see a lot of them in the African-American museum. I think at the genesis of all of this at the root is that there's, there's always been a group of blacks who we would call the black elite or wanna be elite, the pastors, the what have you, even when they did good things, they weren't happy just being the best in their community. And they wanted proximity to whiteness. And therein is where the, the problem began for us as a people. Because in order for those elite people to gain that access, to get the awards and, and get accepted in those circles, they had to facilitate the exploitation of our community. And you, you could see that with the Tuskegee experiment, with the syphilis and all that. Those were black nurses and, and, and people who knew what the, governor, the government was doing, testing these experiments on black people. And th these experiments went all the way to, I think, 1972, man, from like the 20s. I, I, we've had collaborators forever. Now they're just not that smart. They're athletes, they're rappers. So they can't really articulate themselves. But in the same token, the people that they're, they're addressing, they're not that smart either. So if you, if you come at, you have to talk to people in the language that they understand. And I believe this is why you have these intellectual units and educated idiots at the forefront because we have been successfully, and not just the black community, but society as a whole has been successfully dumbed down to a point that if you're talking too intelligently, it'll just go over people's head. Uh, they made a, a, a big deal about Trump talking about how his vocabulary and all that. He spoke to people, they say in a fifth or sixth grade level. And again, this is not a black thing. This is because this is the level of communication. The majority of the people, that's where they are. That's where they could understand. 
If yo man, in order to communicate with the people, you have to talk to them in their language. If you go in there with all these these words and these and they don't know what it means, that they they're not gonna pay attention to you. You gotta give them the crass humor and all that shit that they like it. And they'd be like, oh yeah, that's our guy right there. You know what I mean? So anyway, I, I think that's what's happening. I think it's always been orchestrated. That's why I pointed out that the first chairman of the NAACP was Joel Spingarn, uh, a major in the, in the military intelligence division. And that was the forerunner to the CIA. And then I, I also shown where Bayard Rustin, who was the organizer of the March on Washington, he was a CIA asset. These are all known things. And some of us, we don't really understand because we think because the FBI is investigating them that uh, the whole government is against them. There's so many different moving parts in the government. I think to date, there's maybe 16 or 17 different intelligence and law enforcement federal agencies. And I don't know if they're all cooperating and working cohesively. Some, some, they each have their own agenda and, and, and they do their own thing. So it's not uncommon for the CIA to have people that they're helping and working with that the FBI are investigating, trying to arrest. This happens a lot. We, we, we see it most blatantly with, with drug dealers and cartels and so on and so forth, but it, it doesn't stop there. I, I think there's a lot of things going on that we just don't understand. And when black people talk about racism, if you're talking to the majority, they don't really get to experience racism as far as when you try to get a bigger piece of the pie. Their experience with racism is profiling, uh, racist police. So that's why I think those issues are heightened because it's something most people can, can think involves them. Yeah, because I've been pulled over before and I was scared or they could pull me over and they could beat me like Rodney King. But to me, the real racism that they speak about, it would happen when you try to, when you try to move up the ladder. And I don't even know if it's really racism then, because I think, I think when you try to move up the ladder and grab power, it doesn't matter what color you are, man, the people in power, they not gonna just let you do that. And we could, we could turn around and say it's because we're black. I absolutely think I could be wrong, but I mean, uh, crucify me. I definitely think navigating the world and where black people have no power as a black person is more difficult simply because you don't have a network that's organic to you that you would need to insulate you in these power struggles. So you already boxed out. You know what I mean? If you if you're a member of a certain community or ethnic group, and there's there's a lot of members of your group, your demographic, and positions of power, it doesn't assure that you'll get there. But you could get allies. You could build relationships. When we look around, who do we have? Al Sharpton, Diddy. These motherfuckers ain't gonna get us nowhere. They're gonna get their checks. You seen Al walk into the plane that Tyler Perry let him use to fly to Minnesota or where or Milwaukee, wherever it was to do the uh, the eulogy, they ain't, they ain't got shit, man. They spend their whole life. If you think following them people are gonna get you where you wanna be, you are sadly mistaken. You know, a bunch of thoughts ran through my head as you were saying that. And I, I wanna 
try to share a story without out, outing some dear friends, people, family members, basically, that I grew up with. But I, I had some friends in my people, dudes I grew up with in my hometown, family I'm very close to, that uh, during the mortgage frenzy in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, when everybody was flipping houses and making money, uh, these guys were making real money in my hometown. And there's two different narratives on, and I've heard both narratives on what happened to them. Cause eventually they got in trouble and uh, the government came in and they were like a lot of people around the country that, you know, were accused of doing inappropriate things in the mortgage industry. But th there was two different narratives among these are black dudes and among a group of people either I went to high school or college with or just knew in my hometown. And, and there was a group that were like, man, those guys, man, they, they cut every corner and they exploited their friends and family and they got people in, involved in bad mortgages and brought them into their deal and exploited them. And they, they needed to go to jail. And they got in trouble and one of them did go to jail. And then th there's another narrative that I've heard because I'm still close to these guys that their family to me. And I heard their narrative that they were one of the, what they felt like one of their biggest mistakes was they were disrupting the real estate industry and causing uh, people that had had a lot of power in my hometown in Indianapolis in the real estate industry. They were growing so fast and getting involved in, in deals that nobody black had been involved in at that high of a level. They were disruptors and that they were disruptive and they were trying to bring a lot of people along with them. <laughs> yeah, that'll get you in trouble, bro. Yeah, and they, uh, so I'm listening to it and I, I kind of already know what happened, but keep going. Yeah. Look, and so, all the, the people they were trying to bring along with them who weren't as smart as them, weren't as skilled as them in the real estate industry. And so they were failing and they blamed their failure on them and then started chirping and blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, these guys get in trouble and the government's after them and uh, one guy gets in trouble. And so, to, I always heard, I'd, I'd sit in the middle and I was like, I'm very close to these guys. I grew up with them. There's all these stories about uh, friends and people close to them that they exploited. And I was like, they never exploited me. They never exploited my brother. And certainly for me, I had a lot of discretionary money. And they, hey man, you interested in this uh, deal or not. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. And that was the end of it. My brother, they made a proposal that now nah, I'm good. And, and he just kept doing his own thing. And so I would hear everybody else saying, oh, I got taken. They didn't try to take advantage of me. And <laughs> if you had, if like, if this isn't your area of expertise and you want to sit out, it didn't take much to say that now nah, I'm good. And they moved on. And so I just, 
I tend to agree with them. And and when I go home or whatever, and people at the time, because it's it's now been almost a decade since this whole thing, but I've stayed out of people's conversations about it because they don't really want to hear my take. I'm gonna say, I think it was on you, not them. Your greed, your lack mm. of you thinking, oh, I, I can do this in my spare time. That's what got you into trouble, not them. Because when I told them, no, nah, I'm good. I don't want to do it. I never heard another word about it. We went back to being, you know, we were just as close as friends. There was no animosity. They treated my mother like a freaking queen. You know, and so I just, people don't understand. And, and again, these guys are my age. And so when this was going on 15, 20 years ago, they were kind of young and they didn't realize how careful you have to be when you're trying to disrupt power. Mm. And they obviously they realize it now, but it's like a lesson that we as black people, because again, we have, a, and freedom is new to us. I mean, generally speaking, yeah. it's been since the 1964 that like we were granted our full freedoms here in America. And I just think that a lot of times we don't understand and no one takes the time to explain to us other than the grievance industrial complex to say, anything that happens to you is racism instead of like no man when you're free and you start trying to disrupt power power is going to push back and you have to be very careful and very strategic about how you go about it because regardless of who's trying to be a disruptor black white green yellow or whatever there's going to be pushback and i've been a disruptor in my industry my entire career in the sports media I've been a disruptor. And the only reason why I've been able to survive is because I've been very strategic. And I'm not sitting around waiting to grieve and whine and cry about, oh, I got mistreated and blah, 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 blah. I'm on to the next opportunity. I'm going to create my own next opportunity if necessary. So. Listen, uh, what, what we have to understand, right? And again, we speak to to black people, but it re it's really applicable across the board. You see, new levels brings new devils, right? Every time you move up, there's gonna be a new caliber of opposition there waiting on your ass. And you gotta be ready for it. You gotta be ready to fight. And one of the biggest problem problems culturally that we have is we like to make announcements because it ain't happening unless we talking about it. See, we so we 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 in love with words. We think that everything somebody say is real, <clears throat> and and we don't we don't watch the moves. People will say one thing and move a different way. We haven't mastered understanding that. And to your point, there was a guy, uh, a big dude on Wall Street named Michael Milken. They said he was big with the junk bonds and all that. This is about 30 years ago, 31 years ago, Michael Milken got taken down. And he was so big that he paid a $400 million fine in cash like it was nothing and still did about two years in prison. 
You see, like I said, new levels brings new devils. As powerful as he was, there was still somebody gunning for him. Because even with the with the uh, the investigations and all that, man, it's a dirty game, man. This is not this is not selling crack in the projects. When you start cutting into people's finances, they're tipping off people in government to you, IRS, law enforcement. They'll try to entrap you. Oh, it's a dirty game. Everybody wants success, but do you really want it? Do you know what a contact sport it is to become rich? Of course you don't. If you think all you have to do is be a victim and get a lawsuit, if you have to earn that goddamn money, it's going to take some kind of it's going to take some kind of effort, strategy, and a little luck. And nobody does it on their own, man. You, you need a team. You made a point I want to piggyback off of because obviously, you know, people are watching the podcast and what we're trying to do is in part between the two of us, 110 years worth of experience and trying to, so you don't have to make all the mistakes everybody else made. And you made a point that I think is very critical in terms of this boastful culture we have as black people. And we have to tell everybody everything we're going to do. And I'm about to do this. Well, I'm, I'm about to do something. <laughs> and so I, I want to give you a real life example, give people a real life example of how to move in the corporate workspace. And, and I, I had a woman I'm very close to, black woman, uh, not going to call her name, but uh, uh, she had an opportunity to transition from one corporation she was at to a bigger position at a, a different corporation out in California. And she didn't, you know, she was well established back in her home state uh, and had done a lot of great things and was receiving a lot of accolades of accolades for diversity and what she could bring to a company and blah, blah, blah. She came out to California interview with the company. And she, in my opinion, she told them about all this diversity and these people she wanted to hire and be on her team, blah, 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 blah. And, and she said, she left the interview like, oh, I think they were off put by the people I wanted to bring on my team and the diversity I was talking about. And I stopped her in the tracks. So I was like, why'd you tell them? They, they contacted you. They were interested in you. They liked you. You ain't make them like you and keep your plans close to the vest, more close to the vest. Because once you get out there and do a great job and you have established credibility with them, they're going to be like, oh my God. Bring more people in like you. We would love it. And, and I walked her through. I was like, look, when I got to Fox Sports, there was a vision I had of how I wanted to do TV. And they had a vision. They wanted me to work with Colin Cowherd. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Uh, but that's not what I wanted to do. No offense to Colin Cowherd, 
but that's not what I want to do. That's not me performing at my highest level. I need to be in a black setting to be heard by mm -hmm. white people and black people. And so I set about for two years, oh, I'm gonna make these people love me and trust me and think of me as the ideal employee. And when the time is right, I'm gonna build the best show for me and they're going to allow it. And it took two years of me working with Cowherd, being an ideal employee. And then when Cowherd was done and he had used the show for his purposes, and I won't go into that, but you know, I knew that there was gonna be an expiration date because he wasn't really committed to the show. But once I had built a, then it was like, Jason, who do you wanna work with? Oh, I wanna bring in uh, Marcellus Wiley from ESPN. Oh, I want to bring in uh, this kid, Darnell Smith, who played, who grew up in my neighborhood in Indianapolis, went to my high school and played football at Ball State. He's just a kid, but I want to bring him in and I'm going to create a little role for him on, on the TV show. And then I most especially want to bring in my boy from Kansas City who works in the jail, uh, Uncle Jimmy. He's going to play this role, Uncle Jimmy Bar. They greenlit all that shit because they trusted me. And you all, <laughs> all them people were black. And we built the blackest sports talk show on TV. And it was successful. And again, I didn't want to, it was twofold. I, I want one, it was the best platform for me. And I knew it would be successful and our growth was astronomical, uh, but but people with Fox Sport, Rupert Murdoch, and the Murdoch—they're so racist. They they would never allow something like that. Oh yes, they would. If you make them believe, if you do your job, you'd be a because people want money and success at the end of the day, and whatever color. And I'm not even saying they got a color problem. Uh, you know, it seems mostly the left has a color problem, but but I'm just saying. Oh, color obsession. Yeah, obsession. But again, you don't have to tell everybody going through the door what all you're going to do. Just go in and do you, be the best you can be, and you would be shocked at the opportunities and, and what you would be able to create for others if you present yourself in a professional way and then demand that the people you bring in operate the way that you operate it, it's so so what you're saying is acquire leverage yes and and, and you know what there's and a create, lot of create leverage create leverage yes. yes there's a lot of people right they they play stupid they don't they don't know how to create leverage or they have nothing to create it with so they the, they rely on victimhood because that's the only leverage is to make you feel guilty, right? And, and, and that's what has happened. It's, it has become too popular that everyone is looking for the easy way to the top. And, and becoming a victim is just that. Again, because it goes back to the lack of talent that we once had that's no longer there. People just... I. I I don't think it's all talent. I, I do agree with you. Talent is a key component, 
But I think, there's a, I think there's a lack of resolve. Well, when I say talent, I, I may be using the wrong word because I'm talking about intellect, courage, all of these things that are required for success and they don't have it and they know it. And rather than play their position, they, they crowd the lane with all of this, I'm a victim bullshit. You know what I mean? And there are real victims out there. Yes, there are, but not as many. As, as they make it seem. And the thing that I find interesting, Jason, is that I don't think these people are doing it on their own. I, I think the sedition that's on display, the anti-American sentiments that's being endorsed, I, you know, I think it's coming from someplace even bigger than them. They are being encouraged to carry on with this foolishness. And that's why I called the article on activists, controlled opposition, and Black Lives Matter. Because I believe all of these movements that's getting major coverage, major funding, Black Lives Matter got $90 million just last year. They, they've gotten hundreds of millions of dollars. None of that is finding its way to the Black community. I think they're all controlled opposition, useful idiots and dupes, and we're going for the ride following them, generally speaking. Some of us see it. And, 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 and like I've always said, a con artist will tell you the truth nine out of 10 times. It's that one time out of 10 that you're gonna pay dearly. So yeah, you, you may be able to point to some good things that they did. I mean, I'm not aware of it, but I'm sure they've done something to get people to feel like they're doing something. I, you know, but under the underlying root cause of, of what's going on is what what's really happening here? Are they duping us? Are they misleading us? And my answer in that article is yes. And, and last but not least, when I made the film, I saw a different level of it. There are certain films the narrative in the films, like everything is black women right now on the left, um, LGBTQ, trans, and I, I love women. I have nothing against gay people. I have gay relatives. I, I think most of us do, you know, or we may not even know it. But anyway, those issues are not interchangeable with black issues. Do we have black gay people? Yes. But to say that black gay issues are black issues is intellectually dishonest. And it is a lot of political sleight of hand going on here. And these black LGBT have been selected to be at the forefront of these movements because they more closely fit the agenda of the people who are behind those movements. And it's not black people, man. When you see, if I, if you and I was to start a black organization right now, Jason, we wouldn't get any coverage. It'll be hard for us to get any funding. We certainly wouldn't be getting hundreds of millions of dollars. You know what I mean? They don't. I'm gonna. Do, I'm gonna tell do you. This. Man, they don't. I'm gonna do tell this you why like they've melded or combined the issues LGBT and black. And, and I may have said this before on one of our previous conversations, but 
again, once you combine sexuality and race and make them all the same topic, race moves to the background in priority and sexuality Absolutely. comes to the forefront. It's more important. And I, I make the point by asking people and I'm asked the listeners, people put in your in the comments at below the YouTube, uh, what would you, if you had to sacrifice one, your sexuality or your race? So Curtis, if you had to choose between being black or heterosexual, which would you choose? Heterosexual. Everybody would prioritize their sexuality above their race. That's why these two issues have been combined because it really empowers the LGBT issue and diminishes issues of race. And Good point. It, Good it's point. a game that has been played. Because if you think Don Lemon uh, is more pro-Black than he is pro-LGBT, I got an island I want to sell you in the desert of Nevada. Uh, I, I got a bridge I want to He's pro-LGBT. Yeah. You can tell by who he married, where his priorities are. If they're not Black. And, and, and let me add that they have every right to be that way, you know. No question. That, but don't speak for me though, because your concerns are different from mine. And don't be mad at me that mm -hmm. my priorities are heterosexual. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But the, the the political sleight of hand is needed there, because I suspect their numbers are very small. Yeah. And and they need to inflate those numbers to impose their will politically uh, and in the business world and what have you. And, and guess what, man? I'm not mad at them for understanding that. I, I'm just trying to wake us up so we don't fall victim to that. So we can go ahead and start doing what's best for us like everybody else. But apparently we don't know who we are. And we've put all these women in, in, in position and those women don't like black men. They, a lot of them don't even like men. So again, they have a right to feel whatever. I don't know what their experiences were. I referenced a lady in, in, in the article named Brittany Farrell, and she became uh, notorious on Twitter. She now has a blue check, by the way, but the tweet she put out was, black men are the utmost trash. Right, she didn't say utmost. She said utmost. Well, I, I guess you know Ebonics. U T instead of U T. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, look, and, and and man, and and she is an activist in Ferguson, who was protesting for Michael Brown. If you think black men are such trash, why was you out there protesting for a black man? Because they find a way to turn that into momentum for their issues. She then turned around and was in a film made by a black woman who I've never heard of prior or since called Whose Streets about the riots in Ferguson. And she was featured with her lesbian lover. Uh, I think her name is Alexis, whatever. And, and, and man, and they're talking about how they saw it as a gay couple in Ferguson. And they take they take very real issues in our community. The, the, the Atlantic did a story that said between 1980 
and 2013, there was 262,000 black men murdered. And nobody started an organization to say black lives mattered then. It, it, it just only happened when Obama was in office and he invited a lot of this, these miscreants and misfits to the White House. D. Ray McKesson went to the, the White House either five or six times to talk to him about what? Because that was Obama validating him, just like Twitter validated him, just like Beyonce and Jay-Z validated him. And, and to me, I think it's something bigger. A lot of us think this is about money, but they do, they make moves sometimes that that's to the detriment of their bottom line. I think it's something bigger going on. And that's what I alluded to in the article. The narratives are being controlled. Certain people who aren't organically representative of the community, of the people, are being selected. D-Ray ran for mayor in Baltimore, where he is from, was the best funded candidate and got less than 3% of the vote. So somebody is deciding to force these people on us and create a, an illusion that they have the, the numbers behind them. When they have the blue check and they have Jack Dorsey from Twitter and they have the president, the fucking president of the country sitting down with this idiot five or six times. You're the fucking president. Do you know it wasn't until I saw that that I started thinking that Obama was a fucking idiot? That's what I started thinking. Because who got time to talk to these idiots? Like, you got the, you, you're, the, you're, the, you're in the White House. You're running the country. How, why you got so much time for this clown? Unless you're a clown too. And you see, and that's what's happened to the Black community. They've put the, the crown on clowns for so long They've turned the whole community into a circus. And when I say they, it's the answer to the question that I ended the article with. Who is behind this and why? Because somebody's behind this. This isn't just happening like that. You don't get these nobodies into the White House. Al Let me Sharpton, tell you why. All of Let that me ask you a question because I, I didn't get to. Look, man, it comes down to who's behind it are the globalists, the elites, the, the China, commun uh, you, you can't, in order to impose communism here in America, you, you have to, you have to undermine America's moral conscience and black people we had been America's moral conscience throughout history. Going all the way back to Richard Allen in the 1700s and starting the AME Church, to Frederick Douglass, to Booker T. Washington, to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Black people may put America's Declaration of Independence, values of freedom, we put all that on steroids, our pursuit of freedom made America great. Again, we, we think it was, you know, we argue it was our labor. We built this country, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, and there's a tiny bit of truth, but there's a lot of people involved in building this country. But in terms of making America live up to the ideas 
in its constitution and the Declaration of Independence, it was our pursuit of freedom that made America great. And our adversaries figured this out early on in the 20th century and started enticing us with Marxism and trying to, from Marcus Garvey to Dr. King to any, to W.E.B. Du Bois to James Baldwin, putting that bait of communism and Marxism out there for us and America's mistreat y'all, become Marxist communist. And then after the 64 Civil Rights Act that gave us the freedom, they really went into overdrive in the terms of undermining the black family and black people and seeing that as critical to bringing down America. And it's why degeneracy has been so promoted. Here's the most religious people in America, the most church going people. And starting in the 1960s, degeneracy was promoted. And that's why uh, the media, Hollywood, in order, and again, we'll get into this at some point, Jay-Z and the whole rap thing, that you have to be so degenerate, so devoid of morals as a black person to make it in Hollywood, to make it in the music industry. And again, this it's not just a black thing at this point because no, you, have, you have to be so devoid of morals to make it in those industries. It's a corruption of America. And again, I'm not, anybody that knows me knows I'm not some prude. I'm not some... Uh, you know, off the charts, moralist. You know, I'm a sinner who loves strip, who used to love strip clubs <laughs> and everything that went along with that. You know, gotcha. but it's like we've gone way too far with this shit. Yeah. And, I, I get uh, it. and it, you know, it, it's, it's, <sighs> yeah. look, look, the chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah. And, and you could see it because now what has happened is certain people, not everybody, think they are supposed to be oppositional to the police. And, and they, fit, they find comfort in having a cell phone <laughs> recorded it. And, uh, and, and, and that brings me to this, this black woman who was a teacher and she got pulled over excuse me, by the police, the cop said he pulled her over for um, for using her phone while driving. So I guess she was riding by filming him because she wasn't talking or texting. And he saw her using the phone and she she he pulled her over. The interesting thing to me was she didn't even have her driver's license. She had to show him a picture of the driver's license in her phone and uh, she kept calling the man a murderer, a murderer. I, you know, I was wondering about her sanity, to be honest with you, because she didn't seem, she didn't seem stable. She's allegedly a college professor. Yeah, then later on she said she was a teacher and I was like, really? Yeah. Who was she teaching? Well, she must be in humanities or something. You know, I, I don't I, know. I, I don't want to name the college, but I thought I heard the name of the college. She's at, and actually at one time I was involved with supporting it because I think it's a community college in South Central and I had supported the football team there. I mean, it, it's a community-based 
collars. It reaches out to, but anyway, the woman was an embarrassment and she was an example of like, I, I'm looking at this like, we have normalized and trained people basically dispute everything with the police. Just turn your cell phone on and dispute everything and uh, treat them as if they're the lowest form of humanity. And what that video did, because trust me on this, that guy bought his own body camera to protect himself. Oh, wow. Because that was not issued by the police department. He bought his own because I'm sure he's dealing with so much BS that he had to do that to protect himself. And I, I get, the police to me should go on the offensive. That's what this proves to me is that, okay, y'all got y'all cell phone cameras and every once in a while y'all catch us slipping, doing something we're not supposed to do. But I guarantee you, they have endless footage of that type of abuse that we saw from that woman on their body cameras. And they need to start leaking it out and letting people see this is what we deal with on a daily basis. We pull over some woman on a routine traffic stop and she wants to call me a murderer. And then she wants to tell me, I, you're Mexican, you'll never be white. And <laughs> man, don't, you don't want to be white. He just wants you to take this citation and keep it moving and him going home to his family. Again, it, it, I, I just looked at that video and it's just like, this is where we are. This is... Listen, white, for some of us, not all of us, white people live in our head rent-free. We think about white people a lot more than they think about us. And in fact, we're not even happy with that. We, we go out of our way to make them think about us with incidents like that. You know what I mean? It's, 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 a, it's, it's a pathological, narcissistic, I, I, it's, it's a constant need of attention. If you say you hate people so much or you dislike them, you're anti-white, whatever, that's your, that's your thing. You should want to avoid them, not engage them every damn chance you get. Because when you try to engage people all the time, it's telling me you really want attention from them. Maybe you just want to be their friend. Why don't you just say that, motherfucker? Me personally, I just like to go about my business, do what I do, empower the people around me, regardless of what what color they are. If you're if you're with if you're with Team Schoon, we all gonna eat together. You know what I mean? And that's that. I don't I don't get into all of this nonsense, man. I I, I just don't get it. I, I take for instance again. Obviously, my site is Black-owned. But that's not part of my marketing strategy. You, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, some things are self-explanatory, but I, I make the site for everybody because I don't focus on race. I don't. I understand the challenges that come in certain situations when dealing with certain people. But I can't make across-the-board assumptions about people I don't know and never met. And one of the things with these police uh, 
brutality cases is that you may have a very corrupt police department in Philadelphia and a very benevolent one in Phoenix. Just because a cop in Philly did something, you can't indict the cops in Phoenix. Yes, there are problem departments, and that's where the focus need to be. You just can't indict all the police all over the country, some of whom are trying to do the right thing, and not just trying, some are doing the right thing, right? You can't just, that, that's kind of like what's been done to us. A few black people do some crimes and they say, all oh, these blacks are criminals. Oh, here they come, there goes the neighborhood. The solution is not to reciprocate that kind of energy. And that is really, it's like things have reversed from 1920 to 2020 in terms of, it, I didn't live in 1920, but I would imagine like white people, particularly racist white people were obsessed with black people. And a lot of their conversations about, oh, did you hear about the N word over here, the N word we got bothered. And they're just constant obsession with black people and monitoring what black people are doing. And here we are in 2020 and now black people, a segment of them have this obsession with white people and are constantly talking about white people and trying to monitor and improve the behavior of white people. As if, again, and I make this analogy all the time, as if if I had a white next door neighbor and he lost weight, it would improve my health. I, I just have never understood that concept of how if I fix the white man, things are going to be better for me. And that's because <laughs> I was born in 1967. I, I'll say this. If I were born in 1860 or 57, I would be like, yeah, man, we, we got to improve these white folks so that they will end slavery. I, I would get it. But somebody needs to send out a memo. Slavery's over. We've eliminated the laws. Freedom is out here. Now, there's still unfairness. But I'm just sorry. White people aren't in control of my destiny. They weren't in control of my father's destiny. I watched with my own eyes what my father did. And again, all Black. Black business, Black neighborhood, Black social circle. He found his American happiness. It's out here for you if you want it. But these people act like there is no happiness unless white people are treating them like gods at all time. And I'm just sorry, that's, that's just not true. And I feel so, it's like a white derangement syndrome. They talk about Trump derangement <laughs> syndrome. We got white derangement syndrome that there is no happiness if 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 we can find and again, you know it's funny earlier in the conversation you were talking about Trump talking down to a level where people can understand and I, I make the point and you were making the point that this anecdote driven worldview that many people have that oh I saw a viral video on Twitter. And that means that all cops are this way or all white people are this way. It's a single anecdote. It's like, oh, I got the OJ. And I, I would tell people like, oh, so white people can say, look what OJ Simpson did. And does that apply to all black people? I, I was explaining to two young black dudes, young neighbor. 
mid to late thirties that like, Hey man, you got an anecdote driven worldview and that's unhealthy. And I said that that's a racist worldview. They didn't know what anecdote was and I had to define it for them. Yo, man. And that's where I was like, wow, it's hard to even have the conversations. It's hard to even help people get a broader perspective when they don't even have a basic vocabulary to support a broader perspective. You know what I do on Twitter? I purposely use words that I know people don't know what it is. And I, I don't do that to try to seem smart. I do that to encourage them to look it up because that's what I do when I see words and I don't know what it means. I look it up. You see, I don't look, man, I went to college for one year, right? But my vocabulary is extensive because when I see words I don't know, I look them up and I remember them and, and, and I utilize them because I do understand, right? More so in writing than in, than in uh, verbal communication, a great vocabulary can save you time in getting your point across. And it also, when you're dealing with people who are of a certain intellectual standard, it lets them know that, okay, let me hear what this guy's talking about. They'll pay attention because the minute you start fumbling and using words incorrectly, they'll shut down on your ass. So I think communications are, they're, they're definitely important. I do believe in communicating with people on a level they understand, but there's also a need to try to help everyone raise that level so we could all seem better when we communicate. No one has an excuse now because dictionary.com is so easily accessed right on your laptop or phone yep. and literally, and I'm talking about, I'm a writer and have been one for a long time, but I keep dictionary.com open at all times, whatever I'm reading, because I'll be reading articles and I'll need the dictionary to help me understand some of the words. There's no shame in that. None, none uh, whatsoever. I just put it in Google and it comes up with definition. Yeah, you know, look, yeah. That, that, that's it. And, and, and it's good. And the reason why is because if you talk to people on a regular who don't have that kind of vocabulary, you wouldn't have a need to use it. But when you're writing and you, you're speaking to a broader audience, you, you, you want to convey some level of uh, you know, stimuli there for people that think on that level, you know, and and, and I and I I'm saying that because I want to encourage people. To, if you see a word that you don't know, look it up, man. I don't, I don't know a lot of words, you know, and I, <laughs> I I know a lot from looking them up, you know, and I try to use them and stay sharp when you get put in the right setting, man, because you only get one time to make a first impression. All right, let let's let's move on to. Uh, Richard Danker. And I actually, oh, for one second, Curtis, I actually just sent you a text. I would like to skip Danker just because I don't think we'll have time. The other two conversations might take up a lot of time. Oh, okay, so, okay. Let's try Danker next week because uh, I do want to get to it. Okay. But, yeah. Yo, well, these are going to be the fun ones here. Look, yeah. Jay-Z and selling title to Jack Dorsey. It's kind of like 
he, Jay-Z's in a club, it's obvious. And he's in the same club with Jack. Deduce from that what you will, you know? Uh, Jack spent close to $350 million for 80% of title. Um, that's part of the story, but from what I understood, title wasn't doing so well. Why do you think Jack would do that? Is it just, it's a bailout? Yeah. Yeah, but why would he bail Jay-Z out? See, those are the questions nobody asked. Now, I'm not hating on Jay-Z. I, I, listen, I met Jay-Z in 1996. And, and I've said it before, but I'll say it on this podcast for the first time. The first time anybody heard Jay-Z's reasonable doubt music outside of New York, it was because I got it to the DJs. Irv Gotti contacted me and wanted me to help push Jay-Z on radio. I had gotten an artist of Irv on the radio named Mike Geronimo, who was from Queens. And I did this because my sister worked for Kathy Hughes, who owned Radio One at the time. And she knew the DJs and Irv knew that I could get the, the music on the radio. So he was trying to help break Jay-Z because Jay-Z and them didn't have a big budget. They talk all that shit. But they, they, what they did was great. It was independent, but they called in a lot of favors and, and I was one of them. I got his music to the DJs and they played his, his records. Uh, they didn't want to play the song that he wanted to push. It was Dead Presidents on the A side. But they loved the Ain't No N-Word on the B side featuring Foxy Brown. And Kathy Hughes owned about four or five stations at the time in Philly, Baltimore, D.C., and Atlanta. And that's when Jay started taking off. Now, Jay's, Jay's an interesting guy, right? Because he's been around for so long there are some people who are who just started learning about him when he reached a certain level of success. You know, he comes out and says that he regrets the words in his song "Big Pimpin." He he said something to the effect of, uh, he said, "What what sort of animal would 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 say some things like that?" He referred to himself as an animal in the Wall Street Journal. And I'm like, that's not even the worst things you've said, Jay. Like, <laughs> what, what, what's really going on here? I, what, what's really going on here? Why, why is he humiliating himself that way publicly? Does he mean it? Is he being facetious? What the hell is going on here, Jay? I, I think that he's trying to get out in front of something that could prevent him from going to the next level Got of you. Freemasonry. <laughs> you think he's a Freemason? <laughs> oh, Did you, have you not, the blueprints are basically telling you about being a Mason. Uh, and so I think the club that he's in uh, again, th th there are no mistakes that you can make that can't be fixed. Mm -hmm. And so, and particularly now, because I think a big part of 
what's going on now, the printing of all of this money has really devalued money. And so when we all it was purchased for $350 million, it, 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 in, if we weren't printing so much money, if it wasn't for this in, inflation and blah, blah, it, it, that may have mean it just sold for $100 million. Gotcha. And it may have just covered the expenses that he used launching title. Uh, but, you know, everything I've read, titles kind of been a flop. Isn't that the narrative? Mm -hmm. And so here is another Freemason, Jack, bailing out, you know, we'll just shuffle this money around and we'll repurpose title and blah, blah, blah. Uh, we'll bring you into the family. This is just the globalist elites taking care of each other and passing money around. There's something uh, going on for sure. And 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 that's but 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 I also think that he's buying himself some insurance if there's a potential me too situation for him. Well, I've already disavowed big pimpin' and 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 by disavowing Big Pimpin', I'm also implying that a lot of the music I made early on, <laughs> uh, you know, that was, you know, I was young and blah, blah, blah. And, and again, because all of this stuff they're installing, the left, the social justice culture, none of these rappers, it's all on wax, it's all on cassettes, it's all on CDs, it's all over Apple. The shit that they've said, makes the shit that Trump allegedly said seem like uh, PG for PG 13 stuff. You know, you think Trump said, grab him by the pussy, go listen to Jay-Z's music or any of these guys' music. And I, heard, I heard a Nas song of, of the day and he, he, he threw the F-bomb out there, you know what I mean? I, and yeah. I, don't, I don't mean fuck, I'm talking about the homosexual slur. And they all did. Yo, it was just in the song, like, and it was cool. And we're talking 2001, you know what I mean? Like, really? Yeah, they, they, they all did. And so, you know, I looked at that and I saw that uh, where, where Jay-Z was backpedaling, I went and saw where Dame Dash three or four years ago disavowed Big Pimpin' and because I, I went and rewatched the video and they on a boat and booties is wiggling everywhere, women in skimpy clothes and Dame Dash is pouring champagne all over women and it just... It, I like the video and the song, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, but, but again, to me, Jay-Z saying this at this time, Man, these dudes knew this shit was wrong when they were doing it, but they didn't care. They just wanted the money. And that's why they, they, they prey on the desperate and the people without options and come make this satanic music. Damn. And, is it satanic? Uh, of course it is, man. Oh, man. Of course it is. And we've all partaken and we should all oh. quit lying to ourselves. Jay-Z started you know, he's coming out and, and not lying to himself and say, he, again, the Dame Dash said, oh man, I got daughters and I would never, and the, you know, Jay-Z's got daughters and anybody listening to me, C. Dolores Tucker was not wrong. 
and we ran her out. We took her black credibility away from her. But but and and again, I've always said, "Hey man, I'm a hip hop fan. I'm friends with rappers, but this music is foul. This music is pornographic, and it, you know it's just like you can it, you can be critical of rap music, and it's not hypocrisy that you like it because it's just, I like fast food. It's not good for me." No one gets upset when I say, man, this fast food will kill you. Uh, but you catch me in a McDonald's line. Uh, <laughs> and so this music has been poison for particularly black people, but for American society. And we've tolerated it. No one has said a word about it. No one, no one has said a word about it. I, I'm, I'm halfway glad Jay-Z's acknowledging it, but I'm not going to let him off the hook and pretend like he didn't know it 20, 30 years ago. Because it used to kill me, all the rappers. And again, I, I like Ice Cube, and he's done some good things. But they, we're the CNN of the Black community. <laughs> and, and maybe they are. Maybe the, the modern CNN, exploitive, sensational, blah, blah. But they're not. rap music was never the reporting of facts. No. It, it, it was pornographic emotional satanic energy placed over good beats period end of story and we all ate it up no different than you know playboy subscriptions or hustlers you know i've been to the playboy mansion back when the playboy mansion was a thing uh and Man, that's what rap is i missed out on that one <laughs> <laughs> yeah i you know uh like like i said i like i like big pippin uh I never caught the whole, well, I guess it, if it's not about God, it is about the devil. So in that, in that context, you, I guess you're right about it being satanic. Look, know? man, it's a promotion of hedonism. Yes, yes, yes. And materialism. Yes, yes. And again, why do you think everybody's got big gold chains on and look at my cars and women shaking their asses wearing nothing? Come on, man, it's satanic. And again, a lot of the things that we like are satanic. Oh, the Snickers bar that I like. Oh, man, <laughs> not the Snickers bar. It ain't good for you. Man, <laughs> I, I just like what Jay said on the canopy, my stamina be enough for Pamela Angela Lee. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> you know? hey, hey, since we on this rap thing, man, this city of lies, man. Uh, on your recommendation, I watched it, man. Uh, I loved it. You didn't like it? Um, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was interesting. I'm very familiar with a lot of it. Um, Hold for one second. Give people a look. City of Lies was a movie about uh, a, poli a policeman, a detective, Russell Poole, Russell, and and LAPD. a and a journalist who were investigating basically the death of Big, the assassination of Biggie Smalls, notorious B.I.G. Uh, and the movie, I think was finished in 2018, but it wasn't released here in America until March of this year. I, I There's something wrong with Johnny Depp. 
there was some problem with Johnny Depp. He was going through some stuff. But I also think that's why I like the movie because I don't think it fits the narrative that's being promoted right now. Oh. The, I, you, <laughs> that you, movie was not PC. Listen, and it certainly wasn't woke. Um, the whole thing with Biggie's death. Uh, I, I know, haven't talked to him in years, Chuck Phillips. Right, he he's the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist for the L.A. Times, mm. who covered that story. He lost his job covering that story because he sent me an article one time that he wrote that was going to get published that Monday morning. He said, "Hey, school, take a look at this. Tell me what you think." And when I told him, I said, "Chuck, this this article ain't adding up, man." There was a guy named James Sabatino Jr. who was in the feds and he provided Chuck with doctored legal filings as evidence of certain things. And Chuck was on this to me, I, you know, I don't, some speculate that he was paid by either Jimmy Iovine or the LAPD. But Chuck's theories on Biggie's death was that the Crips were responsible for Biggie's deaths. And the movie last night was squarely placing it on the Bloods and Death Row. See, and the Bloods and Death Row narrative figures into Valetta Wallace's lawsuit. And and she was actually in the movie. Yes, she Biggie's was. mother yes, played herself was. in the movie. I, I, yeah. I found that a little, you know, but whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is, right, and let me say this, I don't know what happened with anybody in that, in that shit, right? But I do know this. When you start talking about lawsuits and money, it could influence the conclusions that you're drawing. Now, of course, there was the Rampart uh, scandal and Rafael Perez and, and, and the, the cop D-Mac. Chuck knew all of these guys for, for some reason. And I'll tell you something else I learned just from talking to Chuck, and it was confirmed in the film last night. That whole LA gang scene is very murky with a whole lot of informants. And I'm talking about high level informants. Uh, you have what's called CIs, confidential informants, but you also have what's called T, as in Tom, E-I, top echelon informants. You know, and uh, one of the people that Chuck was identifying as being complicit in the death of Biggie was the guy, Keefe D, who was the head of the Southside Crips. The Southside Crips. See, they didn't get into all of this in the film last night, so I'm gonna fill in some of the blanks. The Southside Crips. They um, they were doing security for Bad Boy. And and the gentleman, who was accused of killing Tupac, Orlando Anderson, he was the nephew of Keefe D, right? And according to Keefe, who has since, you know, uh, become an informant, not an informant, but a rat, so to speak. I don't like to say these words even about those guys when it's clear, because let me say something, right? A couple of names I don't like to mention, 
it's not because I'm scared of him. I really don't give a fuck. But I don't, I do understand that even though guys told, some of these guys are still psychopaths. And who needs the headaches? I mean, really, they're, they're trouble. Just because they told, don't think that you're tougher than them and you can see them somewhere and say something to them. And me, if, if, if it's not my issue, I don't need to go around looking for trouble. I got enough of my own trouble that I got to deal with to add to any, you know what I mean? But anyway, Keefe D went on Vlad TV and he talked about his, you know, when, when he turned and, and the incident with, with, with Pop getting killed. Orlando Anderson is the, the person that you could see on the footage when Suge and Tupac and them were kicking the fella on the ground at the MGM uh, Grand, MGM Grand Hotel that, that preceded the killing of Tupac. And a lot of people may not even be aware that when Suge was violated for that assault on, on Anderson, Anderson went to court and testified in Suge's behalf. Said Suge was his friend and was trying to help him when it was clear that Suge was kicking him while he was on the ground, right? So that kind of confirms that they were just keeping it street. You know, uh, it sounded to me like somebody told Anderson and them, look, we know you did it. We ain't saying that you did it. Uh, why, should, why should he go down for, for assaulting you? You know what I mean? So we gonna keep it in the street. You do the same thing, come to court. So he did. I see no reason for him to make that trip to court to help a rival out that he, that he had beef with, that had just assaulted him. So I, I believe Orlando Anderson was the shooter of Pop, right? But one of the things that, and this is going to tie back into last night, because last night didn't deal with L.A. too much. But one of the things, another well-known crip from L.A. said a long time ago, he said, y'all don't understand. In this gang world, Tupac don't mean nothing. He said, those crips would have never rolled past all those high-ranking bloods to shoot an entertainer. He may be a big deal to y'all, but in our world, shooting those bloods would have meant more. It would have been a bigger deal. See, so that kind of supports the notion that somebody paid them or offered a reward to kill Tupac, right? So the informants, and there's so many informants, and they're really good at giving disinformation. And, and I could go into some other details, but I won't. But that's why one of the, my favorite chapters in the book, The Art of War, deals with the usage of spies and reverse spies and all that. You think because somebody's a rat, you should keep your distance from them. That's not always true. There are some incidents, some instances where you need to bring them closer to you. You need to kind of make them feel like you don't really have anything against them. You need to give them wrong information to take back and see what information you can extract from them. And this is very common on certain levels of the game. If you're a low level player, you don't really understand what I'm talking about right now, but it goes on and on. I can tell you for a fact that when Sammy the Bull Gravano was in the witness protection program, when he was in federal prison in the witness protection program, there was mobsters in there that wanted to touch him. And they were getting the directors from on the street. 
And there was also a black guy with a lot of clout in the witness protection program, who I won't name, who kept the other Italians off of Sammy. And this, this is what I know. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not gonna say how I know. So think about that. You got mobsters and they talk about Omerta and all that. And they in contact with people in the, in the program, getting them to try to move on somebody else. The game has so many layers, man. It's like, when you really understand it, you, you, start under, you start thinking to yourself, God damn, this shit is just, it's so crazy. I, I don't want no parts of it. You know what I mean? But anyway, back to, to Tupac and, and the case with his killing. Chuck Phillips said that he put out a story that Biggie put up a million dollars to have Pac killed. Turned out that Biggie wasn't in LA and Biggie didn't even have a million dollars at that point in his career. He didn't even have that much money. So somebody deliberately redirected the attention to Biggie. And Chuck being a journalist from outside the community, thinking he's got a real authentic source, a gangbanger that knows, he ran with the story. Somebody, so is, huh? is Chuck Phillips the journalist portrayed in City of Lies? I I don't think so, because that guy's name was Jack Jackson. Chuck Phillips is white. That guy was black. And that guy was also trying to prove that it was the the Bloods and their ties. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. Go back here. You may have missed it, but that journalist, Forrest Whitaker, played, wrote a story accusing Biggie of having well, that was Chuck Phillips. Then they changed the race and everything. Yeah, throw people off of yeah. having Biggie killed. He wrote a story, and then at the very end of the movie, he's sitting down there with Biggie's mother, and he apologizes for writing that story twenty years ago. Yeah, well, Chuck, Chuck, Chuck wrote the story, and um, Chuck is white. I, I, I've had dinner with him in New York, Atlanta, L.A. a few times, and, and all see, that. that was one of the things I thought they may have played a game with. Yeah, they, they in, changed things around with that. That's in what terms of making to make it a more palatable. Because if it had been a white cop and a white journalist, it wouldn't come off the same. And the, I think that guy was supposed to be Chuck Phillips. I think so too. And, and remember, he quit. The guy quits his job basically because he accuses the editor. And because I don't even know if they ever said what newspaper Chuck got fired. Yeah, well, they play games. They play. They play games with. But but the one thing that I, I don't want to gloss over here, I want to. Why I I kind of believe the narrative that the LAPD was involved and killed Biggie at the 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 three or four or however half dozen cops that Suge Knight controlled Kill. is. And I'm just going to, I kind of believe that narrative and I believe the narrative they were like, Biggie was just 24. He had his whole career ahead of him. You could argue in court that his earning potential was a billion dollars and to make a settlement with his mother was going to bankrupt yeah, the, the, the police department in the city. Great narrative, great narrative. And it could be true. But I do know that the night that Biggie got, um, the night that Biggie got killed, right? The talk in New York was that he got killed over 
unpaid security money, right? And I was thinking, and they were talking about it on the radio and everything. Somebody, a guy from Harlem, street guy, called up the radio station because dudes in New York was kind of like, they, they took it kind of personal. I remember Fat Joe being on the radio saying, man, if we can't go out there, then they can't come out here. You know, I remember him saying that. And 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 dudes was mad. They they, they took it on like, yo, oh, they doing they doing it like that. You know what I mean? They they love big, you know, but the talk was that very night was that it was for unpaid security. And I was like, in my mind, because I wasn't really keeping up with it, I'm like, unpaid security, how much money could that be? I'm gonna tell you what I think. If if it had anything to do with the Crips, it wasn't for unpaid security. It was that unpaid money for that hit. That's what I think. Now the other, the, the, the other. The unpaid other, money for what hit? For Tupac. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Because after they after Tupac got killed, it was turmoil in in uh in in Compton, and there was so many different people riding on them Crips. Like they was taking a lot of L's, man. It, it got really rough for them. You know, they were taking all that pressure. And if someone had promised them some money, well, they could really use it at that point. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I, I'm gonna tell you this, I'm gonna say this as well. The danger with paying somebody for a murder is that once you make that, per, that payment, now you are part of that conspiracy. If you never make the payment, they can't prove that you are part of the conspiracy. But if you hand over the money, then they always have that on you. And then to the day that you die, you gotta worry about one of them getting arrested and calling you from jail, talking about, yo man, you know, I need this, that, the other, I need lawyers. Who wants to be in bed with somebody forever like that? So I can understand why somebody wouldn't pay the money, but that somebody probably shouldn't have given the okay, you know. But that's if that case happened. Now the other scenario is is what they explored in the in the in the in the, in the movie last night. The head of security for death row was the son of the police chief of Compton. Again. There's so much interaction between police and those gangs out there. When these rappers get out, when they when they go out to LA and they looking for validation and they voluntarily walk into that murky world, they don't know what they're doing, man. A lot of things aren't what you think they are. I stay away from certain people. And yo, it's not my scene. I'm a lot older. I don't even care anymore. If I go to LA, I'm in Santa Monica. Or, 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 or Hollywood or wherever, you know what I mean? But I'm not in the hood. I don't go to foreign places to visit their ghettos. I'm sorry. You look, I don't know who does that. <laughs> but Biggie got killed on Fairfax and Wilshire. I don't know what that's. You're right. Because I, I stayed over there, not far from there, near the yeah. museum. I, I know where Pan Pacific Park is. I used to go work out in next to the Grove. I know the area well. I stayed the summer out there one time, but and it's a nice area. But 
man, the, 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 the police connections are strong. I believe, I believe the Rampart case was is real, but I don't know if it had anything to do with the killing. It may have, it may not have. Uh, the kid D Mac, you know he's home. He did the time for the uh the bank robbery, and he's back on the street. And he's back on the street. And nobody said anything. And look at Rafael Perez. He made a deal, but he didn't give them the information they wanted. He blamed the police. You see, and again, informants, man. But again, the, the argument in the movie was that if Perez had blamed the police, he then bankrupts the police in the city of LA. Yeah. He, he, he validates the lawsuit from Biggie's mother. And so the, the ramparts was basically a distraction is what they argued. Here was my biggest takeaway. And this goes back to my overall criticism of rap. And, and, and just like, it's really, we've celebrated it as this great thing, but it's really been a negative force. I think they gave a common criminal Suge Knight access to, let's say $500 million. And he used that $500 million to buy up the police and to wreak havoc in LA for about a decade. And who gave him the money? Uh, the music industry. Jimmy Iovine, Jimmy Iovine. Yeah. Yo, Chuck told me he was at Jimmy Iovine's house and was watching Chug throw around the football with Jimmy Iovine's kids, man. Like, yo. <laughs> Listen, there's a lot going on there, man. There's a lot going on there. And again, I don't know who did what. I don't even care, to be honest with you. But I think everybody involved is filthy. That's what I think. And you lay down with dogs, you're gonna come up with fleas, man. You, you get with you get in, you get with these people, even on the gang side, the music industry side, whatever. Yo, they're not playing fair, man. Uh, Lee Daniels' brother-in-law is a big crip that turned informant. I mean, a high-ranking dude, and his brother-in-law is a high-ranking crip. Lee Daniels, the movie guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lee Daniels. His sister is... And see, that's the other thing. To me, L.A., man, is like... It's kind of different, man. The, the structure there, um, it's a lot going on. Those worlds are intersecting, right? And the allure of money, people are being compromised in a lot of ways. There's a lot of money being thrown around out there. And you know you got these you got these handful of guys they call them shot callers or whatever, and they have their influence. And then you got these other people that want to um, have safe passage, or want to be able to do certain things. Like when you see uh, Antoine Fuqua, he took he took he shot the scenes for Training Day in the jungle and so on and so forth. The jungle being the the blood hood over there in, in, in LA, it was like a big deal. But in order to get in there to film and not be bothered, you had to have relationships with somebody who could get you in there. And I, me personally, I don't, I'm not from the gang world. I don't need passage 
and gang turf. I need to stay my ass out of there. And, and anybody who's not from LA and not from the gang world, why do you need to make friends so you can go around them when they don't even put money in your pocket? If anything, they're gonna find a way to get money out of your pocket. You know, if you're really about business, you wanna be around the people that's gonna put money in your pocket. But if you wanna, you know, pretend that you're somebody you're not, then you start making friends you don't need. And that's rap. A whole lot of cosplay and people getting themselves in trouble. Look at Tupac, man. This dude went to the high school of performing arts. What the hell is he doing running around with gang signs, throwing this up, talking about riding on fools? This is not who he was, man. Let, let me say this, though, Curtis, and I can't remember the document, the name of the documentary, but I think you're underplaying how much money is actually in the hood, cash money, untrade untraceable money in terms of unreported money is actually in the hood. I watched a documentary about uh, some corrupt cops in New York. And- The Dirty 30? No, nah, I can't remember the, I can't remember, but- The 73rd Precinct, is that what you're talking about with Michael Dowd? Might be, but the guy was bragging about how like, you wanted an assignment in the hood. Because like, yeah, it's more dangerous, but there's far more cash. Yeah. And, and I, I just think for, because again, this whole hip hop world, and again, it ain't like all these guys in the hip hop world went to some business school and blah, blah. Because you'd be amazed how many of these entertainers, the comedians, the rappers, what these dudes don't even, they hate paying taxes. Many, look at the shit that happened to Wesley Snipes, hating to pay taxes. And so when you take, they don't even understand and don't even, I was, this was, I heard a story about a couple of well-known comedians, well-known comedians at the highest level that they got deals early on for like $750,000, $800,000 early in their career. Mm -hmm. Never paid a tax on it till <laughs> 10 years later. Because yeah. it's their first time with any money. And, and, they blew it. And, they blew, and so I just, I think there is, there's a lot of money to be made in, the, in that Look. seedy underbelly of a world uh, you know, just the, the the other guy that I'm tight with, I can't use his name, is uh, I used to be tight. Sean Ryan, he made a TV show called The Shield. Mm -hmm. And it was, I was watching City of Lies last night and it made me think of Sean Ryan because they mentioned the Ramparts case. And The Shield, basically the concept and the idea for it came from the Ramparts scandal. And uh, in it, in the Shield, if you're in the Shield, is a great television show, one of the greatest. And anybody that wants to understand LA gang culture, relationship with the police, should watch the Shield. It, it's the Shield is more action packed than the Wire, and there's a little bit of more exaggeration to it. But but in the Shield, they explored the police's relationship with well-known rappers and the rappers 
serving as basically snitches to help, you know, and help There's them. There's a whole lot of that going on. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And because again, the rappers need the connections to the gang members so they can pretend like they're gang members. And they just, they're just close enough to the action to provide the police the information they're looking for. But there is, and again, these rappers, just like you said about Biggie, not having a million dollars, but he's on, he's in all these videos, he's all promoting the fact like he's got a billion dollars. <laughs> so how, where do they get the access to that kind of money? Drug game, the gang world, the whole nine, it's, it's a whole little wicked alliance. I, I, I know where you're going. Um, some rappers do, um, do get sucked into that world to make money, right? But then you got other rappers, they try to project their image because success in rap is contingent upon image and authenticity. And if you're talking like you're, you're from the hood and you do this and you do that, and I, I don't wanna just say none of them are doing anything. Some of them, some of them actually are, as you pointed out. Some of them may have been doing a little bit before they got into rap. And then they met people because of fame and they got access to people they would have never had access to. So they started doing more. But the people in particular I'm speaking about who should stay away are the ones who make a lot of money from the music industry, but they just like to have uh, a certain element around them because it helps fit the image that they have monetized and marketed to the public. Just recently, there was a guy from Brooklyn named Pop Smoke, up and coming rapper, got killed in a house in the Hollywood Hills over there. You know what I mean? They, they arrested some gang members or, or whatever. I think he was a gang member too, I'm not sure. Like I said, I don't keep, I don't keep up with, with this stuff. They're like kids to me. And I think a lot of it is avoidable. I think they don't have sound mentors around them. That but, but you, you, Curry, you, let me... you know when you blow past certain things, to me there's a time to be tough, but then once you get to a certain level, you don't need to worry about that no more. You know, Curry, and, and, whole... I don't think they get it, and somebody got to tell them that. They do, but also, Curtis, I'm just, I'm going on what I know because again, I'm friends with some rappers. Some of them, it's almost like recruiting in football and basketball. Mm -hmm. So a basketball, LeBron James or who, some basketball prodigy, there may be some hustler in his community who's like, man, look at that 13 year old. He's going let me throw his mama some support or throw him some support. Mm -hmm. And when he makes it to the NBA, I'm going to be plugged in. He's going to have to kick me back. This, this is what happened uh, to a lesser degree, but uh, to the Fab Five, Michigan, Chris Weber, Jalen Rose, these guys from Detroit or whatever. I can't think of it. Ed Martin may be the, the dude's name. Big hustler in Detroit. Older, more distinguished guy. Mm -hmm. But he supported these guys when they were young and in college and high school and blah, blah, blah. And then he and Chris Weber got crossways because <laughs> this dude wanted his money back. And, and they got crossway. That happens a lot in the rap world. 
you are the little 16, 17 year old high school rapper that's got a lot of buzz and the big dope dealer is supporting you <laughs> on, on your way up. And then you go sign with a major label and that big dope dealer is like, hey man, you know, I didn't invest about $150,000 in you for three or four years when you were nothing. And that time he put some interest on that and some taxes on that. It's like, you owe me a half million dollars. And there's some loyalty connected there, but there's also some pressure and debt. And so it's hard for these guys. And again, so take someone like me who had a father and a mother and I didn't have to go, I didn't have my hand out as a kid. Nobody could get their hooks in me as a kid. But for some of these rappers, some of these athletes, the, these, these dope dealers and, and hustlers, th those kids are their 401ks. Let me spend a little money on this kid and maybe it's going to pan out. It's, it's their little stock tip. Just like, you know, me and you playing around in the stock market, they invested in human beings at 13, 14, 15 years old, hoping it's going to pay off for them five, six years down the road. I'm going to tell you why I said what I said. Take a guy like Diddy, right? Diddy hires the Southside Crips as security. Diddy's already dealing with millions of dollars. Why don't you just hire real security, Diddy? That's the, that's the situation I'm talking about. Nobody in the hood was giving him any money. They, he had more money than all of them, right? He went. He goes out and gets Southside. Let me give you a thought. Members. I'm gonna give you a thought. As a security. I'm gonna give you a thought, and it's like the Diddy might think I'm giving back to the community. Yeah, I could go out and hire some white cops to do my security, but I'm trying to put money back in the hood, so I'm letting the Bloods, the Crips, because again, these guys not. They may be Bloods and Crips, but they also Johnny and Ray Ray and they somebody, you know, blah. In his mind, again, this could be what he's thinking. Because again, I could see myself at a certain age in my late 20s, early 30s, making that same mistake Diddy made. You know, uh, what he did was he got involved in gang politics. And I don't think you would have made that mistake, Jason. Yes, I would. There's, there's a dude, there's a dude from Harlem whose name I won't mention. He's deceased. He's been a suspected TEI for a long time, but he was also a crip. He made the introduction to Diddy with Keefe DNO. And he suggested that they be the security because the Southside Crips were the natural rivals to the to set of bloods that should belong to. So they went purposely to get people they were feuding with and they were as a counterbalance. See, I watch a dude like Don King, who to me is more gangster than all of them. And he had off-duty police officers as his security. That's, that's what I, you know, but again, you might be right, man. Maybe I'm thinking way more advanced than they are. I don't know. But I would have never got involved with, we don't need that shit. We're making real money over here. Do you know- Curtis, in your no. 20s and 30s, that's why you really shouldn't have all that money in your 20s <laughs> and 30s, because you don't know what you're doing. Curtis, I'm not, this isn't me remotely, it's embarrassing what I'm about to tell you, Go to ahead. some degree. 
-hmm. but but anybody that wants to go search some of the things I've been involved and people I've been involved with publicly. I, I used to, <laughs> I used to bring a dude on a podcast. Uh, I called him strip club Rick out in Vegas. And he used to come on my podcast, Fox sports 15 years ago, 20 years ago, something like that. This dude is doing life right now. Wow. And <laughs> you know, he caught a body and I didn't know at the time that he was, cause you know, he caught, he caught this case two, three years ago, 15, 20 years ago when a friend of mine, blah, blah, blah. All I knew was that, you know, he knew the good strip clubs <laughs> in Vegas and I used to date a chick that liked to smoke weed and he could get her weed. And or he sold her weed. That, that's all I knew. And again, I, what I make that, and I, I'll never forget, because I, I, dude, I got some shady friends, and and because just it's not that my father was shady, but he, you know, he had a bar in the inner city. Kind of like shady people. <laughs> and so that's part of the fabric of the hood. Yes. And so I can never forget this had to be 20 years ago, but I'm at the uh, MGM pool party and we got a little private cabana blah, blah, and some brothers ran up on us because, you know, we were one of the, we were a group of brothers. We had a cabana. And so all the girls, I don't know if you know anything about Vegas pool parties, but you get a little cabana. All the girls want to come in your cabana because you got some shade, you got alcohol, you got food. But these brothers get upset. The girls they were partying with come up in our cabana. I'm liquored up. And I tell the dudes, like, man, y'all don't want no trouble. They circle back, run up in our cabana. Uh oh. The dudes that I'm with, I'm drunk and I'm a public figure and you know, I'm not I'm not about that life. The dudes that I'm with are about that life and ran through these dudes. It's all on tape. It's all, <laughs> my casino host comes down, gets me up because they, they cuffed up everybody but me. <laughs> they cuffed up everybody but me. I'm just I've been in so like, and when it was over, when I sober, I was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? So I, I can- I, I would just tell you how I think, man, yeah. you know. Um, I'm getting, you, boy, you, you, me, you get to talking and I get way too transparent, but. Look, look, look. <laughs> the, the more, the more, the more I have to lose, the more careful I become. And that's at any age. And to me, if you're a street guy, right? And I'm not gonna admit that I ever was a street guy. But if you're a street guy, most street guys, their dream is to, to, to do it big legally. So you know what I mean? Like, and, and the, the reason why they stay in the street because they don't know how to make that transition. Nobody in their network, they can't trust the people on that side. They don't know them. It's a different set of rules and so on and so forth. But anytime you are getting legal, millions of dollars. I don't care what age you are. You should be smart enough to know. 
I don't need to be around gangbangers. Because what they do is bang. That, that bang part of the name is there for a reason. Of course, you're going to meet all kinds of people that seem straight up that commit crimes because there's an Italian philosopher named Honore de Balzac. And he said, behind every fortune is a crime. So we interact with criminal elements all the time. Let's just try to keep away from the reckless elements. <laughs> that, that, that's the key. Because we don't know, I mean, the, the gangbangers aren't the only criminals that you're going to come into contact with. The brothers you run into, there's criminals in all these offices and everything. And that's, you know, that's part of what I was noticing when I was dealing with talking to Chuck and he was giving me some insight. Yo, man, they know. Jimmy Iovine knew what was going on. I wouldn't be surprised if Jimmy Iovine had something to do with Shug getting violated so he could make the move on the Masters with Afini Shakur and get control of that while Shug was in jail. It's business. It's a dirty goddamn game. You know what I mean? They gave Afini Shakur her own deal after Shug. They took everything from him, and Jimmy took Dr. Dre from him and gave him aftermath records. When they was through using the big dummy, they took everything from him and sent him on his way. He ended up getting knocked out by Greg the Barber, and now he's in jail doing 20-something years. What an idiot. A fool and his money shall always part. And Suge was a big fool, a glorified nightclub bouncer. That's what the fuck he was. And I said that about 16 years ago. Before he went to prison, I'm on the record saying that. I was never impressed with him. I just felt like he was a big dummy. And, and the people that followed him, he left nothing but death, destruction, and poverty in his wake. Period. It's a good note to end on, man. All right, my man. <laughs> All right, Jason, till next time. I'm All right, take care, Curtis. Okay, then. Later. Share, subscribe, and like our YouTube channel to get alerts for new episodes.